Now that's a tribute to elevating grace. It's exactly what the Lord does. Romans chapter 2 verse 13 might be a good place to start. Welcome to the speedway of Nazareth. Where we make no mistake. It's a good song. The doctrine of justification. Part six. The plan is for there to be seven parts to this doctrine so that we can give it a fairly weighty treatment. Certainly not an exhaustive one. The main thing that we should be concerned about is that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. That he stands before God as the just one. He is in the sight of his father. He is in the presence of his father. And righteous and just are both good names for him, both adjectives that describe him. The just for the unjust died for us. The just for all the unjust. And he is the righteous one, as we've seen in Habakkuk 2.4. That shows up at the key verse of Romans in 117. So picture the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of his father. As the father sees him as the just one. But you must also understand that when the father sees the just one. He sees all of humanity in him. Justified. This is in God's sight. The most treasured gift we can have, besides the gift of God's own love, is the insight into God's sight and the ability to be lifted up and to see what he sees, at least in some measure. And that's what gives us the enduring hope that we live in. The righteous one, therefore, is also the justified one. And in the sight of God, all of humanity is represented in him. This is the core and the heart of the doctrine of justification. And it may go against some of our preconceptions and previously held convictions. But that's what we're doing all the time. We're moving out and beyond ourselves, out beyond our previously held comfort zones. We go from a life that is curved inside ourselves to a life that is outside of ourselves in Christ and one in which a hope for ourselves is graduated into a hope for all of creation and all of humanity in all of its times. And that's what's happened right in this place, a place I like to call the Alamo, place of our last stand be aware this week that there is not only a service on Wednesday night where we will be continuing again I always say Lord willing in my mind if not in my with my mouth on the doctrine of doing and living theology doing and living theology most challenging of teachings that I've ever engaged in in a way although it's also I think the most revelatory Also on Thursday night, all are welcome for the Power Gospel Night with Phil Henry. And you can come out and support that, one of our choice servants of Christ, as he delivers a new set of Power Gospels in which he is laboring very hard. I know he is. We contact each other once in a while, and he's usually at work in developing these five-minute things that are going far and wide and listen to... By a lot of people. I I have a feeling some people consider that to be their church. Especially, hey, if you can go to church and be done in five minutes and you don't have to go anywhere, you know. I am a big believer in personal contact, however, and I do believe that 2 John verse 12 says that our joy is full when we see each other face to face. Now, the contrast between two so-called gospels, I think is clearest when we see a comparison of Romans 2.13. Now, 2.13 goes added to that is 16a. 
2.13 and 16a is a continuity. 2.14 and 15 are rightly in a parenthesis. If your translations show those verses in a parenthesis, that's correct. Paul asks a question, throws in another monkey wrench into the opponent's argument, and asks, what about those pagans, as you call them, that actually fulfill the commandment of the law when they don't even have the Torah or the law? He throws that in. But so there is a continuity between Romans 2.13 to 16a, the first part. 16b is another impolite interruption by Paul. We've seen, and I think it's a wonderful key to the interpretation of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, that at least the first four chapters involve a dialectic of contradictory gospels. They're in that there is a clear distinction. It's as clear as light from darkness, and we see it most clearly represented, that contrast crystal clear when we see what Paul's opponent believes and preaches and what Paul himself believes and preaches, and they are distinguished. This is where a differentiation of consciousness is needed. The word of God is sharp and powerful, and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and it also causes us to make distinctions. Because the distinctions are not made, there's a tremendous confusion just about what justification is. And so today I would entitle this message, All Flesh Will Stand Justified in God's Sight. Because the just one the single inclusive representative of all mankind stands in God's sight and in God's presence justified. The contrast once again is clear when we see what Paul's opponent believes and it's clear in Romans 2.13. The opponent believes and preaches, it's right here laid out, it is not the hearers of the Torah or the law who will be justified by God. The future tense is used but the doers of the law will be justified. Now follow that right into 2.16 where there's a smooth connection. Romans 2.16 says, on the day when God judges the secrets of people or all mankind's secrets. So that's the view of the opponent of Paul, it's not the hearers of the Torah or the law who will be justified by God, that is, on this future day called the last judgment. But the doers of the law will be justified on the day when God judges the secrets of people. Now, contrast that with Romans 3.20, and I find this verse to be extraordinarily insightful and important in the interpretation of Romans. Paul explicitly states in Romans 3.20, quote, no one alive will be justified by the works of the law. No one alive. Now this is extremely important because it sets up the readers of the epistle to the Romans for the exposition of Christ's death, just what Christ's death means. The very phrase, no one alive, sets up what's coming, the doctrine of Christ's justifying death. So this is extremely important because it sets us up for the doctrines of redemption, reconciliation, justification, rectification, by which all flesh who will not be justified all living people who are not justified are justified by partaking in the death of Christ and his resurrection for our justification. So I think that probably is almost as important as Habakkuk 2.4 to the interpretation of Romans is Psalm 143.2. We've looked at it. I tried to emphasize this during our exposition. It appears in the Septuagint as 142.2, not 143.2, the Septuagint being the Greek text. The Greek text of Psalm 142.2 can be translated as a prayer. The psalm singer or the psalm composer 
makes this prayer to God. He prays, do not enter into judgment with your servant. And that's a circumlocution for a person to say, me. In other words, I'm your servant. Don't enter into judgment with me. Because no one alive will be justified in your sight. No one alive. Literally, the Septuagint translation says, because all flesh will not be justified in your sight. He's actually saying, don't judge me by me. Judge me by a just one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, the taking away of our sins, not for ours only, but for the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And so the opponent, wants to quote this verse and add his own insight into it, which would be accept by the works of the law. Because that's his whole shtick. That's his whole gospel, as we just read in Romans 2.13 and 16a. That sums up his stand. And so the opponent wants to take Psalm 142.2 in the Septuagint, which is 143.2 in your English translations, where it says no one alive will be justified in your sight. He wants to add except by the works of the law. But Paul actually breaks in in Romans 3.20b. And to this word, this quotation that no human being will be or literally all flesh will not be justified in his sight. Paul jumps in here and he says by the works of the law. If no living person can be justified by any human means whatsoever, then that certainly covers doing the works of the law by a human being. Now, the controversial point is that also includes the act of human believing, human confessing, human baptism, human ritual, all human sacraments, all that. It's all gone. It all disappears in the just one, Jesus Christ. So to no human being will be justified in his sight, Paul adds in Romans 3.20b, by deeds prescribed by the law. So just before his opponent is going to say, except by deeds of the law, Paul says, in essence, especially by deeds of the law. And he hammers this case from then on, we move into the what I call the astonishing pivot, 321 to 26, which anticipates all Paul from Romans 5.1 through 8.39. Then we get into the question, as we have in Romans 9 through 11, the question of what about Israel after the flesh? And what is Israel? Who is really Israel? So, Then Paul actually brings in a shocking principle, and he says, for through the law, he's saying to his opponent, through the same law that you think people can be justified by doing the works of the law, I'll tell you this, all the law can do is enhance your consciousness of sin. That's all it does. That's shocking. That's a shocker, and that's a stunner. That's a punch that's almost a knockout right at the beginning here. For through the law comes only the consciousness of sin. This actually introduces us to the whole epistle to the Hebrews, and I'll just give this as an aside because I think we'll be looking at Hebrews in some detail in the near future. The epistle to the Hebrews offers a kind of commentary or a corollary to this declaration because if you read Hebrews 10, especially 1 through 10, It is shown that the sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law did nothing to remove this consciousness of sin at all. And so the commandments of the law commanded to do, and if you failed to do those, you had the offerings, the offerings and the sacrifices, especially those on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, offered by the priest. But even those sacrifices could not take away the consciousness of sin. In fact, they actually brought about a remembrance of sin. You can read that again in Hebrews 10, especially 1 through 4. 
So it's obvious that these offerings under the law, Torah, could never take away sins, though they did serve to ritually purify the offerers. They ritually purified the offerers so that they could take on and carry on the citizenship in Israel. And so by contrast, the offering of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all, one time and for all humanity is what that means. One time and for all humanity. Not only took away sin, Hebrews 9.26, he appeared once at the juncture of two ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Astonishing verse. But in that transaction, he also sanctified all the human race once and for all, according to Hebrews 10.10. And so if you put Hebrews 9.14, 9.26, together with 10.10, you get the idea. So you'll notice that by a comparison, and this is also extremely important, this is a significant point I just realized kind of yesterday, or I realized it before and could only articulate it starting yesterday. You notice that by a comparison of the words justify, a key word in Romans, and sanctify, a key word in Hebrews, that the single idea together, bringing sanctify and justify together as a single idea, what is brought forth is that the Christ event, his death by which he took away sins and the resurrection of the Son of God for our justification, that one Christ event made the whole human race not only right but holy in God's sight. And that's where verses like 1 Corinthians 1.30 come in. It is God's doing that he made Christ to be for us righteousness or justification and sanctification and redemption. That is the guarantee of our final redemption of our very human bodies. Christ is our justification Christ is our sanctification and so justification and sanctification should not be divided but God is joined together no theologian should really rip apart so our justification in that sense is sanctification and our sanctification in that sense is justification. The only reason Paul uses justification only in Romans and Galatians is because he's fighting that fight based on Psalm 143.2, which his opponents in Galatia and his famous opponent in Rome try to use to show a justification by the works of the law. That's the only reason he used justification. So you read these high-minded scholars and theologians saying, Ephesians can't be written by Paul because he uses no word like justification. In in Ephesus, he's not fighting that battle, you fool. I mean, you scholar. So, Psalm 142.2, again, in in the Greek text, Paul uses in his own gospel to express and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when God makes Jesus Christ to be righteousness or justification and holiness or sanctification for us, guess what that does? It makes it radically impossible for any human being to boast in his sight, boast in his sight, boast in his presence. I am justified because I, I am sanctified because I. It's always we are justified because he, we are sanctified because he, and we are in him. 
And so 1 Corinthians one thirty one goes back to one of our favorite passages, Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. In Romans, Paul brings the Septuagint translation of Psalm 142.2 significantly into his own dogmatic proclamation of the gospel. While he first interprets Psalm 142.2 with the words, all flesh will not be justified in your sight, Paul rightly renders that no one living, nobody alive will be justified in your sight. So I would say in all my prayers, Father, answer my prayers, not because you've judged me to be justified in your sight, but because I'm in your son who stands before you justified. And so do I. So I pray boldly. I pray confidently. I pray with confidence for you. I pray with confidence for every individual in this church, for Tetelestai Phalanx, for my family, for the extended family, for your families, your extended families. And I do it with boldness and confidence. In fact, 1 Timothy says, pray for all humanity. Because all humanity is already the object of an unparalleled love by God. Pray for them all that they may realize it. Come to the knowledge of the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. Pray. You can start by praying for your neighbor. Yes, even that one who plays loud rock music into the evenings, wee hours on Saturday night. Paul is saying, therefore, by the works of the law, all flesh will not be justified. That's another way of saying it. In your sight. In your Sight. That's in diametric opposition to the opponent's assertion in 2.13. That it is not the hearers of the Torah who will be justified by God. That is in the future at the last judgment. But the doers of the law. What a vision of the future. That's what we would call an apocalyptic eschatological forensic view. Not held by Paul. You see, no wonder certain, I use the word advisedly, scholars and theologians have assumed that Paul was confused when he wrote Romans. I would say he sure is if he believes both Romans 2.13 and Romans 3.20. If he believes, in other words, that no flesh will be justified by the works of the law and people will be justified by the doing of the works of the law, he's confused. Fortunately, the people in the present time, or in Paul's present time, would have understood the value of Socratic dialogue, and they would have seen it, and I think Phoebe would have performed it very well in front of the congregation. I think they would have gotten a few laughs out of the Turner Burns sermon, of which she mocks of the opponent in Romans 1, 18 to 32. So, Paul is precisely correct to render the sense of the Septuagint as, quote, all flesh will not be justified in your sight. Paul keeps that famous and important word, important for Romans and Galatians, not so important for Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, because he's not fighting that war there. He's got other fish to fry and other fights to fight. And I'm going to be closing telling you about the fight we got to fight. And we're in one. Every time I go to my study, I'm going into the ring. Every time I go into the pulpit, I'm going into the ring. Every time I live and breathe, I'm, fi- I'm in the fighting the good fight. And so are you. We don't know it sometimes. And we do get little rest periods where we cool off in the corner. And the Holy Spirit waves the towel in our face to refresh us a little bit. But Paul keeps that famous word dikaiao in the future. He sees it future. He quotes it future. We're talking about a future justification. And some of the scholars I admire most and have gotten a lot of insights from actually believe that our justification, though it's kind of ours now, isn't really ours until the last judgment when it's demonstrated by looking at our whole life 
that we really believe by doing good stuff. Now, that's not the gospel. And so I have to keep moving on. God is beyond. And so we have to keep on going beyond if we're ever going to know him. If we ever stop at a certain plateau and set up our tent or pitch our tent or build a house, we'll find ourselves building on sand. We have to keep moving. And life is a constant set of conversions that bring us to higher horizons and elevate us out of self-absorption into a worshipfulness of our God, a knowledge of him and a worship of him. So Paul keeps the verb dikaiao in the future tense in Romans 3.20, just like it is in the Septuagint, because, you see, the opponent's view, and this is why I introduced it last week, the opponent's view is that the verdict of justification, when God drops the hammer and says justified, will be pronounced on the doers of the law in the future at the last judgment. And so like most people believe and think in the United States of America today, you can't know till then. And there's this big hope so. Hope I will have lived up to or lived kindly or done this or done that or visited people or done all the things in Matthew 25. Consequently, Paul understands and represents the opponent's view properly by Romans 2.13 and 2.16a. 2.13 smoothly finishes 2.16. It is smoothly finished in Romans 2.16a. So consequently, the view of the opponent of Paul is accurately articulated in, again, I want to make this point clear before we leave this doctrine. 2.13 plus 2.16a. Rule out 2.14 and 15 for the moment where it says it is not the hearers of Torah who will be justified in the future by God, but the doers of the law will be justified on the day, 216a, when God judges the secrets of human beings. Remember the Jack Chick tract. This was your life. There's a big screen. Everything you ever did, that time you lusted against your fellow office worker and looked with leering eyes, you thought nobody saw. Well, the whole world sees now. There you are. And your wife's standing next to you and cracks you upside the head. You see, that's not going to happen. Jack Chick. Well, I don't want to say anything about chicks because then it would be gendered. No, I don't want to, I'm kidding. The opponent of Paul holds what J. Lewis Martin identified, and we saw that in the last part, as a forensic apocalyptic eschatology. A forensic apocalyptic eschatology. On part five, we went into this. The opponent's view of the future... And that's a big thing about what makes us tick, our view of the future, our imagining of the future. Is a big, it's a big thing that makes us tick, that makes our heart beat, that makes us live. He was a forensic apocalyptic eschatology, which is a, the majority, I think, of Christians hold this apocalyptic eschatology. It's forensic. His view of the future is a final judgment in which God holds court and issues a verdict of justification only on the doers of the law while he leaves the judgment of condemnation on all the non-doers of the law. But here's the question that's begged. This begs the question. In other words, you really can't help ask this question in the light of that gospel, so-called. Just how many works of the law will suffice? Does God weigh on the balances the works of the law done by an individual? On one side of the scale, where on the other side, 
the lawless deeds of the same individual. And therefore, does the person receive justification if their deeds, according to the law, weigh more than their lawless deeds? Is that how it works? And I'm sure a lot of people on their deathbed have said and thought, well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad ones. Because here I go into eternity. The problem with that, and I would say that this is an even more unwelcoming scenario in the future, is on the horizon. If we consider what James 2.10 says, James himself wrote this in 2.10. He says, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. That's not just an unwelcoming future scenario. That is downright gloomy. In Galatians 3.10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27.26, right from the law that this guy says you have to obey to be justified, Deuteronomy 27.26. You know what it says? Cursed is anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice. Paul, the rabbi and the apostle, properly interprets this verse in Galatians 3.10, and he reads it this way. Cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law. So according to your same law, Mr. Opponent, if you're justified by the works of the law, but if you don't do them all, and do them perfectly, you can't be justified. And even if you offend in one point, you've blown it all and can't be justified. That kind of takes apart that gospel. It's no wonder that the apostle called the Galatians fools in Galatians 3.1 for taking in a message that makes them rely on their own doing of the works of the law for their future justification. Where they learned Paul's gospel, they actually deviated from it. Can we deviate from it? Yeah. So what does Paul do? He reminds them that he portrayed from the scriptures and from his preaching Christ and him crucified right in front of their eyes which shows that he, the crucified Christ, is the just one for you, and you're justified in the crucified Christ whom God raised from the dead for your justification. No wonder he said, you fools. And you can say, you fools, in a way that's loving if you've paid the price and paid the dues of loving the ones you're calling a fool. You're, you're not obviously saying it in the sense that you're deriding them, but you're saying, you realize how foolish it is for you to accept a gospel so-called by my opponent, opponents there in Galatia that tell you to rely upon your own works of the law for a future justification when I preached Christ in whom is your justification now in the crucified Christ. Who has bewitched you? Someone put another vision in front of your eyes and attracted you by some shiny thing. He's basically saying, get back to reality. So he had the right to call them idiotes. But then I say, why not call fools those who believe that they will be justified at the last judgment because, in a look back over their lives, they will have believed and then remained faithful to God for the rest of their lives. I'd say a person's downright fool to believe that. Or what about those who believe that they receive the imputation of righteousness? This is closer to home and closer to our immediate past, in my case. When they believe in Christ, but that their faith is only validated by their works. Which I don't think I ever believe that, but it's close. 
Or what about those who, though believing in eternal security, still never live the Christian life? If they can't lose their salvation, what happens at the last judgment when it's revealed that they took the salvation God offered them, then said goodbye to him for the rest of their lives? The usual answer for people that hold that view is, well, they lose rewards. And an appeal is usually made to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 in this regard. Now, certainly there's a lot to be said about 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. Rewards and loss thereof. And I know some of you are itching for me to address it. But that's down the line. Just a little ways. Thank God that Paul again replies against the opponent in Romans 2, 16. The second part belongs to Paul's interruption. To the opponent's assertion that the doers of the law will be justified on the day when God judges the secrets of all human beings, Paul replies and actually interjects here. According to my gospel, he does this through Christ Jesus. According to my gospel, he does this through Jesus Christ. So in other words, standing between you and all your little secrets... And God is Jesus Christ, who is the revealed secret that you have justification. Surprise, surprise. You mean they're justified? Surprise, surprise. Yeah, that's a secret. It's been a secret all their life, but they've been justified in Christ. It's a secret. God reveals that secret in the last day when we all see Christ as our justification. You see, I believe that the impact of this entirely gracious message is rectitude, uprightness, Christian integrity, ultimately. At least the possibility exists for it in this message. It does not exist in the forensic message at all. Best you can do is life on a trampoline. Sin and rebound, sin and rebound, sin and rebound, sin and rebound. Never live in between. Never live in between. The mechanics of a so-called Christian life should be replaced by the mystery of a participation with Christ's fidelity, which never, in fact, does. it never has a self-exculpation. In other words, when it sins, it doesn't blow off its sins or takes accountability and acknowledges the sins. Yes, it does. That's coming up too, but down the line. The secret of all people is that they've been justified by God's pure grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So imagine saying to somebody who, doesn't understand this. You know, the secret about you is going to be revealed <laughs> on that day. Well, what's the secret? The secret is that despite your screwed up life, you're justified in Jesus Christ. That's called the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages past, but is now revealed. It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a secret. There's the secrets of all people revealed. Thank God that instead of God looking over our lives and judging whether we've lived it up to something or not, or lived perfectly, or if not lived perfectly, at least our good deeds outweighed our bad deeds. Thank God that's not what God's going to do and drop the gavel. Oh, you're justified because just barely 670,000 bad works but you have 670,001 good works. You're in. Enter the joy of your Lord. You, 670,000 bad works, 669,999 good works. Off you go into an eternal blast furnace with no relief forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I'll never help you out of it. Bye-bye. Go to hell. I think that's kind of like what Phoebe did when she did the turn or burn sermon, by the, which is multiplied by the thousands in church history. So then, 
The secret of all people is that they've been justified by God's pure grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 24. All sin and keep coming short of the glory of God. Being justified by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By Paul's gospel, gone, gone is the dread of a last judgment in which hundreds of millions of human beings are discarded into an eternal hell, either for not doing good or not believing and confessing and being baptized, etc., etc., etc. People have enough to dread in this life, like the dentist or a surgery or a marriage ending. Which some people think life ends with marriage. Other people think my life would end if my marriage ended. So then, we got enough to dread in this life. Like social gatherings. Oh, I've got a social gathering. Uh, The flu season, whatever that is. I like winter better than summer, so. You could say, I dread the summer. And when God said to his people, you know, I get a kick out of you guys. You say in winter, you wish it was summer. And in the summer, you wish it was winter. At night, you wish it was daytime. In daytime, you wish it was night. In other words, discontentment. We got enough to dread. How about adding on top of it the dread of the last judgment? We don't need that. God doesn't give us that. So gone is that dread. Gone. And so what the inspired psalm composer wrote is eminently true. And by this Paul's gospel, gone is the dread of this last judgment in which hundreds of millions of human beings are discarded, literally thrown away into an eternal hell for not doing good or not believing. Rather, God judges the secrets of people through Christ Jesus, who took away their sins in his death and won their justification in his resurrection. If that's too good for you, if that's too good news, if it's too good to be true, maybe you ought to come up to the good news. Be elevated up to it. It takes a while to understand this and to accept this, I know. So the composer of the psalm was right to say, no one alive will be justified in God's sight. No one alive can be justified by any human means whatsoever. Whether by doing the works prescribed by the commandments in the law or by doing the works prescribed in the New Testament, including believing. No one alive will be justified in God's presence at the so-called last judgment. But God took care of that. And Paul expressed it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.14. When one died for all, then all died No one alive can be justified, but all died when Christ died. So can the dead be justified? Yes, if they're raised from the dead, which they were in Christ Jesus, who was raised for our justification. Ours being all humanity over all the course of time. Romans 5 18, just in case you forgot. If you forget that verse, you are truly forgetful. No one alive is justified. But in the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, no one got out alive. All died when Jesus died. And when Jesus died, he died to sin. So that sin lost its domination over the entire human race. And when Jesus arose from the dead, 
for the justification of all the human race, then all the human race who died with him came alive with him and were justified in God's sight. And people object to this because they say, I don't see that. Well, thank God God does. Being justified in God's grace or by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, all will be justified in God's sight at the last judgment. In fact, the real last judgment was Jesus Christ's death on the cross where God saw all justified by resurrection. In God's sight. Talk about contrasting views of the future. This is where I want to get a little pastoral. And exhortation will be the forte from now on. Just these closing moments. Talk about two contrasting views of the future. And I can speak as one who's held them both at one time or another. Can we even begin to calculate the impact on a person who is converted from a horizon on which they envision a future in which only a small percentage of humanity go into the joy of the kingdom of God and eternal life? And they envision the same future while a vast majority go into a hopeless eternity of endless torment. Imagine the impact of being converted from that horizon to a view of the free future in which all of humanity in all of its times are summed up in Christ, which is the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. When all creation is released from its shackles in slavery to entropy and corruption. When God is all in all. What happens when that change of horizon happens? You're saying, well, it's happening to me. Yeah, little by little. Sometimes I thank God for the little distractions in this life. Because I'd probably die of being overwhelmed by this new vision of God in eternity. And in Christ, all being summed up. The conversion, which some of you have undergone and are undergoing, and many more will, is so great. It is so powerful as to be both liberating and transforming. The doctrine of justification, rightly grasped and rightly understood, confers that hopeful horizon. Upon you. Brings it into you. And it's an inward conversion. That turns the curvaturae in ad se. That curvature into ourselves. Which is the core problem of all. The human condition today. The core psychological. The core sociological. The core problem that even results in wars. Curvaturae in ad se. Curvature into the self. This horizon tends to cure that curvature. Just like Jesus cured the curvature that kept the woman facing down to the earth for 18 years. A curvature caused by Satan, the adversary. Indeed, the gospel of Paul's adversary would cause you to curve downward too and inward. Released from that to a hope for all humanity and all of creation. That's what happens in you. That's precisely why being justified by reason of the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, Romans 5.1, is followed a little down the line by let us boastfully exult in the confident hope of the glory of God. Being justified not by our faithfulness but the faithfulness of Christ who died to take away our sins and was raised for our justification, let us therefore now confidently boast in the hope of the glory of God because it's universal. I'll prove it in a moment. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Being justified by reason of the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, let us boastfully exult in the confident hope of the glory of God. 
which is the glory of Christ, the knowledge of which will fill the whole earth. Right a little down from Habakkuk 2.4 is 2.14. The knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, which now shines in the face of Jesus Christ, will fill the whole earth. Habakkuk 2.4 in connection with Second Corinthians 4.4, meaning that all of creation will reflect the image of God, which is Christ. That's the glory for which we hope. From beyond history, the psalm composer saw this and shouted. Many of the psalms are written by a psalmist who has a view from beyond history looking back. He sees the view beyond history. And one of those is Psalm 72, 19, where he says, May his glorious name be acclaimed forever. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The view from beyond. Then he says, Amen and Amen. Repeated also in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Every eye will see him. Likewise, from the overlook of the seraphim, the seraphim had a certain curious view. They surrounded the throne of God. And surrounding the thrice holy God, the three times holy God, holy, 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 they sing incessantly. And even now they sing incessantly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of the armies. Adonai, Sabaoth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. From where God sits, literally, the seraphim see the whole earth filled with the glory of God. But even now, as we stare into the mirror of the word, we do today, now and always together. We are transfixed and transfigured from glory to glory into a more accurate imitation Imitatio, as the Latin says, of the image of the Lord, imago domini, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in his face beams into our hearts to give us that knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of God. Yes, even now. Though we wait for the blessed then. When we see him all together as he is. And become like him by glorification. And that's our last part next week. Or in the near future. Those whom he justified. Which is everybody. He also glorified. In God's sight. Romans 8.30. So this is the, the gospel that Paul calls. My gospel. This is the gospel I call my gospel now. You can call it your gospel too. This is the gospel I call my gospel. This is the gospel of God about his son in Romans 1, 1 through 3. This is the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. This is the gospel that announces that though all flesh will not be justified by any human action, whatever. All flesh has been justified in the Christ event by God's action in which Jesus in his faithfulness was handed over and handed himself over to take away all the offenses committed by all of humanity in all of its times. And he was raised from the dead by the faithful operation of God's power for the justification of all of humanity in all of its times. So what went wrong to require this rectification is that sin entered into the world and with it death. What went wrong was rectified and set right by God in Jesus Christ by whom sin was put away and death was defeated. Hebrews 2.14 to 15 tells us that the devil, the one who used the leverage of death 
to make people live all their lives long in the fear of death. And every other phobia and fear is related to the fear of death. He was destroyed, deposed. Jesus said it well in John 12, 31 to 32. Now is the judgment of this world. What? Now is the judgment of this world. The cross of Christ, the crucified Christ. Now the ruler of this world will be thrown out. When I am lifted up, Christ crucified, the sense here has to be this. I will cast a net because the word for draw all is drag, like the drag net. Jesus is saying, when I'm lifted up, I'll cast a net that drags all of humanity, all of creation in all of its times to me. And away from the prince of this world, he who casts his net over all of creation as the ultimate fisher of men and all humanity, he also drew all judgment to himself. So that according to my gospel, God judges us through Christ Jesus, who was judged for us. So that those who will have done good, as John 5, 28 and 29 says, those who have done good will be raised to eternal life. And those who have done evil will be raised to a judgment of acquittal. The point of John 5, 28 and 29, and you'll always get this from people. You will get this as an argument. The point there is that we are all those who have done evil. And there are none of us who will have done good. So we are all the recipients of the justification of life in Romans 5.18 through Jesus Christ our Lord. That means we all receive life out of death and a judgment of acquittal. Yes, even those people whom you think most do not deserve it. Which is another backhanded way of saying in reference and Relative to them, I do. Well, F you. Forget you, the old you, and put on the new you, is what I say, politely. So here's the fight. So really, what have we got to fight about? What's there to fight about? Well, there's a lot of fight left in those who have not yet received the change of horizons. There's lots of fight in them. You don't think there's fight in them? Go to a nice social occasion where everybody's nice. Either bring up politics or this gospel. You'll find out there's fight in them. For those of us who have received the change of horizons, all we got left is the good fight to fight. Fight the good fight. And that's a fight against principalities and powers, not human beings. Powers who throw shade on the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ or veil it. They throw shade to use a modern idiom. And who throw shade on the universally Impactful crucifixion of Christ for salvation. For if our very good news, I can do exhortation quietly too. If our very good news or gospel is veiled or shaded over, it's hidden in those who are perishing. Like drowning people who fight the lifeguard who's saving them. They're adding to their own perishing. And by perishing simply is meant that they continue in the Adamic ontology trying real hard, stuck in the present evil age, spinning their wheels in an attempt to be self-justified. That's why they fight you or fight that gospel. In their case, 
The God of this evil age has blinded the eyes of the incredulous to prevent the light of this gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God, from shining forth in them. That's the fight. That's the battle. We don't fight those who do not see. We fight for them. We carry on for them. We stand not against those whom the God of this evil age has blinded. We don't stand against those who he's blinded. We stand against the God of this age who does the blinding. Our battle isn't with flesh and blood, human beings, but with principalities and powers, real supra-human powers, That's whole existence is to throw shade on the light of this gospel and keep people unbelieving so they can keep manipulating those people by the leverage of the fear of death because of a horizon of a damning God in their future. Which is why the word God damn appears so often in human language because they believe that God is a damning person. He damned sin. He damned hell. He damned death. He justifies you. We don't fight those who do not see. We fight so that they will see. We carry on for them. We stand not against those whom the God of this evil age has blinded. We stand against the God of this age. We're fighting for those who fight against us. We're fighting for those who fight against us. As Jesus said to those men who wanted to kill him, I'm saying these things so that you may be saved. John 5.18. John 5.34. Pair them up sometime. He wasn't fighting those who would kill him. He was fighting to save those who killed him. Father, forgive them was answered. Our fight is not with flesh and blood, but with the very powers that oppress flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments And every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and allegiance to him. We stand with truth like a belt around our waist. Righteousness like armor on our chest. With our feet shod with readiness for the gospel of peace. Which is the good news that announces That God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. That's the gospel of peace. In every situation, without exception, we take the shield of faith. And with it, we're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. We put on the helmet of salvation. We wield the sword of the spirit. And we stay alert with every prayer and request. We pray at all times in the Holy Spirit. And we stay alert to this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints, even for the saints who don't believe in the very good news, perhaps especially for them. In fact, we pray for all human beings as they are all the objects of God's incomparable love. We don't retreat into the comfort of previously held convictions in order to keep our friends or stay friendly with our family even sometimes. We carry on for their sake, anticipating that they will see what we see And that we all will see. And we will see it much more as we continue in the grace of God. Acts 13.43. Thank you, Father. 
And we commit ourselves to you, and I commit Tetelestai Phalanx to you, as always, and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up and to give us even now the inheritance that we will all have in the future, even now the inheritance of the kingdom of God. That word of grace is able to install that inheritance right in us right now so that we don't have to remain stuck in the evil age not receiving the inheritance of the kingdom of the heavens in the present, though we will in the future. We pray, Father, that you'll give us the strength for the fight. We fail in the fight because we're not fighting the right fight. In this right fight, we have the spirit of power and grace and kindness and love. And we stand against the supernatural powers that would throw shade and veil this gospel. Help us, therefore, not to see our fellow believers as enemies or as our, any fellow human beings as enemies. But grant us the grace to have love so perfected in us that we love those who have made themselves our enemies because we know and have a horizon of the future where Jesus Christ stands before you in your sight as justified and in him all of humanity in all of its times justified. Make this horizon be seen by us all. Make us see in as much as possible in this life what you see in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.